the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Reaching Your Heart. Pastor Michael Oxentenko's message today is entitled, The Secret of the Lost Ark. That's The Secret of the Lost Ark, and you can find it online at ReachingYourHeart.com. Here at Reaching Your Heart, we believe that God answers prayer. If you need prayer, you can call us at any time, 24-7. Here's the phone number, 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. Here's Pastor Michael Oxentenko with The Secret of the Lost Ark. Today's Reaching Your Heart. I want to thank you today that Jesus Christ, we don't have to be afraid of the tribulation. That we don't have to be afraid of the future. But in Him we can rest in the truth of the everlasting gospel which we need every day. And Father, as I open the scriptures today, I just pray for your abiding presence, your grace in my life personally. And I pray it for everyone here. Lord, we need to study today. Our sermon will be a study of the Word of God. Help us to focus. In Jesus' name, amen. The disaster in the Gulf of Mexico started out as a human disaster. The explosion was followed by the sincere search effort to find the workers who were lost when the oil platform blew sky high. Eventually, the search was canceled because it was obvious these men had died. The human disaster was followed by a natural disaster that is unbelievably big. It dwarfs the Exxon Valdez oil spill in Alaska. And it was discovered that the explosion had somehow damaged the valve that is the automatic shutoff. Or it could be that a terrorist attack did this. They don't know right now. But the net result is 210,000 gallons a day is pouring into the Gulf of Mexico. The federal response is massive because what we are looking at is a natural disaster that is one of the largest natural disasters in human history. The president is sending 66,000 feet of inflatable boom with seven skimming systems to contain the spill. Military bases in the vicinity are being mobilized to work with environmental agencies and anyone and anything that can help save the Gulf of Mexico. And you can bet your buttons that this disaster will be in the news for many, many days to come. You know, as we near the end of time, I think we can expect more of this kind of thing. We are going to see the very world we are living in unravel before our eyes. Now, scientists tell us that the oil that comes from these millions of gallons that are pouring into the Gulf of Mexico, that if you go far enough back in time, they came from living things. That's why they call oil a fossil fuel. And many thinking Christians who accept the Bible as the Word of God believe that most of the Earth's fossil fuels were created by a global catastrophe that is called Noah's Flood that is defined clearly in Scripture. Now, when I say that today, there are plenty of seminary professors... There are others who get their degrees sometimes in nonsense, others who get their degrees in areas of science that are very valid, but there are plenty of skeptics in the world, both secular and religious, like Dr. Dawkins who wrote The God Delusion, I could cite seminary leaders as well, and they make light of those who believe in the real and historical flood story that we find in the Bible. They act like it's just a myth that got stuck there and we're better off ignoring it. 
The oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, I believe, represents, as we are speaking here today, the unfinished business of Noah's flood. We still have the evidence right in front of our face. Today, most Christians who accept the Bible as real history, they take the Genesis account very seriously, and I'm one of them. I don't think it's any accident that right there in the Gulf of Mexico, there is a crater 180 kilometers in diameter that has been called the Crater of Doom. An asteroid six miles in diameter hit the Gulf of Mexico with the explosive impact of 100 million megatons of TNT. And that's one big firecracker. The explosion sent a heat wave into the upper atmosphere and most of the dinosaurs died in minutes. In minutes. And when that giant asteroid impacted the Gulf of Mexico at the time of the dinosaurs... There is a large consensus that it created a tidal wave that was a global tsunami. It went across the Atlantic Ocean with the force and speed of a jet. In a study released by the University of Colorado News Center in 2004, the news release summarized the scientific analysis of the university team of scientists in this way. They said pterosaurs and non-avian dinosaurs had no obvious adaptations for burrowing or swimming and became extinct In contrast, the vertebrates that could burrow in holes or shelter in water, mammals, birds, crocodilians, snakes, lizards, turtles, and amphibians, for the most part, survived. Now what they're saying is this. If you could swim, you lived. Because the dinosaurs died because of a global flood. And if you were able to somehow survive in the water, you were able to make it. Now, that's not a far cry from what I read in Genesis 7, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. Now, verse 12, And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the cattle according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every bird of every sort. I mean, the Genesis account clearly teaches that Noah saved animals that couldn't swim. Noah saved animals that could be the seed for a new beginning. The reason we have mammals and certain land animals alive today is because the ark protected them from the devastating impact of an explosion from the deep, which was the great sea. And I believe when we look at the evidence there in that magnetic resonance image taken by NASA of that massive meteor impact in the Gulf of Mexico, we are looking at the fingerprint of the flood. The ark was a time capsule of life that seeded our world with life forms from the past. Credible Christians don't believe that the Genesis story is a faith tradition based on mythology. They don't believe that fake history is a sound basis for faith in history. Dear heart, God's word provides real history for real faith. And by real history, I mean history that really happened. Not just history we think might have happened. Not just epic literature. No, real history That really happened. Let me illustrate this. When the Bible says in Genesis 1, and God said, let there be light, what does it mean? Some people will say, well, it means that we would like to believe that somewhere in the past a loving God did something of the like to create. It is our hope for belonging that creates this in human literature. That's not what it means. Dear heart, it means God was really there. 
It means God really said something. It means He said, let there be light. And the darkness turned to light. And the Word of God, dear heart, that was there can be in your life today because there's a continuity between the faith you have and the basis of your faith in God's Word in history. If you believe you can base your faith on a myth, in the end you will reject the Bible as the Word of God. That's why the theory of evolution is not morally neutral. It's not theologically neutral. What you do with your scientific outcomes affects your faith in God. So you better be a thinking Christian, not one that simply goes with the stream in which we live. Now think about the spiritual implications. If God was not really there in the beginning, and if God really didn't say, let there be light, then where is God today in your life? You know, if the Bible's a myth, then it fails the faith test because a myth is not a sound basis for truth, morals, and faith in anyone's life. I, for one, believe that you can take the Word of God, you can look at the internal evidence within the Scriptures, There is prophetic and historical evidence to believe that the entire Bible can be taken as it reads, as the Word of God. Jesus and the apostles who wrote the New Testament accepted the creation story as authentic history. And you know, when professors come along, even in our denomination, and they act like Jesus treating the creation story as authentic history is somehow an unintelligent and uneducated approach to theology and to science, I shake my head. The creator of the universe in human form doesn't know what he's talking about? Come on. Christ and the apostles who wrote the New Testament, they believed in the creation story. They accepted the flood story as a real event that really happened. And they accepted God's presence in the past and God's word given then as a covenant and a promise that eventually gave us Jesus and the gospel and the charter of the Christian faith and the prophetic mission of Christianity. If you do away with the Old Testament truth, there is nothing left for New Testament truth. If you cut your Bible in two and you throw away that Old Testament as a myth or a relevant teaching, you might as well throw away the New Testament and Jesus goes with that loss. Christ made this statement, Luke seventeen twenty six. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Now Christ clearly taught that the second coming of the Son of Man will be a real historical event that is a global event akin to Noah's flood. He also taught that the attitudes in Noah's time will be very similar to the attitudes that we will see at the end of time. And for Jesus, real history in the book of Genesis is more than just a story. It is a real story of a real event that provides a warning for the future. So Christ's warning is clear. The end will come suddenly and decisively as it did in Noah's day. You know, dear heart, if you're planning on a future that's predictable, you better set that aside. If you're trying to manage your future without letting the Word of God be the governing principle in your life, you will not stand in these last days, but the positive is true. If you accept God's Word, if you surrender to its claim on your life, if you let Christ be the Lord of your life, and you take His statements of truth as truth for you, you will survive any kind of unpredictable future that is ahead because Christ is a safe way out of here. There are many Christians today who believe that Jesus will come in a secret rapture, and most people will be left behind very much alive. We have a famous series of books that were printed. One of them carries the title Left Behind. 
They envisioned a plane falling out of the sky because the pilot was taken secretly. They described cars going down the road that suddenly veer off the road because the driver was taken secretly. Some even imagined mothers pushing their child strollers along and then suddenly the baby's gone because the baby was more righteous than the mother and the mother's left behind. This teaching is not biblical. I'll just say that right out in the front here. It's not biblical. And I want to prove it to you today by going to the very presuppositions that are the basis of this modern view of the second coming of Christ. And I want to look at the context of Jesus' warning here described in Luke 17. Luke 17, 27, Jesus says, The flood came and destroyed them all. Now what happens to those who are left behind? We have a clear statement here. It says in Noah's day, the flood came and destroyed them all. So we have a clue that when Christ comes, it's not going to be some day where it keeps on going on. There's going to be a dramatic break of history and things will no longer be the same. In fact, things will not be at all here. Notice the next verse in Luke 17, 28. He says, Likewise, as it was in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In verse 28, Jesus says, likewise. Now, likewise means there's a connection of ideas and a relationship of concepts. The Noah story and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah share an important truth with the second coming of Jesus Christ. He is making logical connections by using these stories. Verse 27 says, the flood came and destroyed them all. In verse 29, it says that when Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, fire and sulfur rained from heaven. And again, we see the phrase, it destroyed them all. So what's the common lesson between the two stories? In each story, a great cataclysm destroyed them all that were left behind. Now, it's no accident that Jesus in Luke 17, 30 makes this statement to pull the two stories together. Luke 17, 30. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. What he's saying is those who are left behind will not be alive. All will be destroyed. Now Christ is saying in the simplest kind of terms that the second coming will be just like the destruction of Noah's flood and just like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Both disasters came quickly. It was unforeseen and they swept all the unbelievers away. Now, many Christians today believe in two second comings. Are you aware of this? Not one, but two. In the dispensationalist rapture theory, there are really functionally two second comings of Christ. And when we speak of the day of the Lord, they really have two days of the Lord. The first is a secret rapture in which Jesus comes at the beginning of the tribulation. And the second is the one in which he comes at the end of the tribulation with his saints. The first is called the rapture, and the second is called the second coming. In both cases, Jesus comes. In the first, they believe he will rapture the saints and they will leave secretly. In the second, they believe he will return with the saints and they will stay openly. And the tribulation is the time that's in the middle. They believe the rapture is the secret eloping with the church, not some grand and glorious march to the wedding. No, it's an eloping with the church while the second coming after the tribulation will be seen by all. And they believe the rapture can happen at any moment, but the second coming will have to happen after a certain series of clearly defined events. Now, there are variations of this. In fact, I find that every author seems to have its own little twist as to how this works. So I am, in some sense, reducing this down. In their view, once the rapture occurs, the second coming of Jesus will be a predictable event. They build this idea around the notion of a tribulation week 
of seven years. There's a gap in the middle that they call the church age. And they take the time prophecy of Daniel 9, 24 to 27, which is a time prophecy of 70 weeks of years, which is really 490 literal years. And they cut the last piece of seven years, the last week off the time prophecy. And the last seven years that really predicts the death of Jesus on the cross is interrupted and it's interpreted incorrectly to the extent that they throw it into the future. And when they throw it into the future, they have the focus of this last week no longer centering on Jesus Christ, but focusing on an antichrist and his activities. So in the middle of the seven-year tribulation, the antichrist will be cut off with no power, not Jesus Christ. And they base it on Daniel 9.26 along with other passages spun together in ways by different interpreters. And I might add, sincerely so. I believe in the literature that I have read that these are good, honest, sincere Christians who are trying to come to grips with the prophecies. So we don't carry judgmentalism into our analysis here. We are brothers and sisters to those who hold this view. In Daniel 9.26 it says, Then after the 62 weeks the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. This is a key verse for them. So in Daniel 9.26, the prince who is to come is interpreted as an anti-Messiah who is really the antichrist. And when they speak of antichrist, they are thinking of a single individual, a political leader who arrives upon the scene, who will be very popular, and the world will be seduced by his charisma. And there has been speculation that George Bush was the antichrist. We now know George Bush is not the antichrist. And the other side have thought that maybe Barack Obama is the antichrist. And I can probably say, based on their last guess, that Barack Obama is not the antichrist. I mean, when Christians do this kind of thing, it really looks bad. So you have two messiahs in Daniel 9 with the rapture theory, the true and the false messiah. The true messiah in verses 25 and 26. And the false messiah in verse 26, who is the prince who is to come. So in this view, the word prince really doesn't mean messiah prince like it does in verse 25. They say it's the antichrist who is a false messiah, even though the text doesn't say that. Now it's important to note that in each verse, the word for prince is the same Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word Nagit. The greatest thinkers of the Reformation understood that verse 26 is talking about Jesus Christ, God's Messiah. Christ was cut off to save us from our sins in the middle of the last seven years of the 490 year time prophecy. Seventy weeks of years of decree concerning your people, Daniel says, to finish the transgression, to put it into sin, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to anoint a most holy place. And then he goes on to tell you how it happens. From the decree to restore and build Jerusalem based on Ezra 7, that was in the fall of 457 B.C., until Messiah Prince. He says there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven times seven is 49. 62 times seven is 434. You do the math. From the autumn of 457 B.C. with no year zero, it brings you to A.D. 27, which is the beginning of the last seven years. Now what happens in the dispensationalist gap theory, they cut that last seven years off and they throw it in the future. But the text really doesn't say we have a right to do that. And so the text says in the middle of the week, he would confirm a covenant with many. And we know that Christ died in the middle of that seven years. 
and that he also confirmed the new covenant with the church. And this is the correct understanding. And men like Sir Isaac Newton, some of the great reformers, there's evidence that the early Christians understood this prophecy this way, not the way it is now being interpreted with modern dispensationalist theology. And so in the middle of the seven-year tribulation, they believe the Antichrist will be cut off with no power. And they don't see Jesus Christ at the center of this prophecy. Jesus, dear heart, is the culmination of the 77s, not some antichrist who slips into the text at the end of time. The tribulation week view is a new view in Christian history that has really severed with the roots of historical Christian theology and of the Reformation. Without any justification, they take the last seven years of that 490-year time period, and they cut it off, and the text doesn't even say they can do this, and they start using creativity, and they throw this last seven years far into the future to the end of time. The gap theory and the prince who is to come in verse 26 becomes the Antichrist instead of Jesus Christ. I mean, here's this prophecy that points to the end of sin, to the eradication of evil, to the bringing in of everlasting righteousness, And instead of ending with Jesus, it ends with an Antichrist when they do this. The Antichrist becomes the center of the prophecy instead of Jesus, who is the center of all prophecy. You know, if we leave this prophecy alone, we have something very beautiful. We have the unfolding of a time prophecy that is the greatest proof that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. Seven years of grace, the last seven in the time prophecy to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin. And at the end of the seven years, Stephen is stoned. Christ dies in the middle of the seven years. And the gospel is confirmed as a covenant for the city of Jerusalem. And those who accept it become part of the Christian church, God's new Israel. And those who reject it lose everything. The text says in verse 27, the prince will make a firm covenant with many for one week for seven years. As I said... Many expositors who hold to the rapture view believe the prince there is the Antichrist. And he will make a covenant with the Jewish nation. Let's read the verse again. Daniel 9.27. Actually, let's read the verse for the first time. Daniel 9.27. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even till a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, what is this firm covenant with the many for one week? Let me share with you the other view, the view that is held by dispensationalist theologians. Hal Lindsey, the author of the late great planet Earth, made this statement on the Hal Lindsey report that's on the Internet. And here it is. The EU is now at the mercy of Russia for its supply of gas. Russia has been able to force its will on some of the EU's critical decisions by threatening to cut off their indispensable gas supply. Having Israel as a supplier would be far better for Europe. And here's his point. And this would explain why the coming Antichrist from Rome will make a covenant guaranteeing Israel's security as predicted by Daniel 9.27. I mean, this is current understanding. They're taking Daniel 9.27 and they're saying, listen, the Antichrist who's coming from Rome will make a covenant with Israel to guarantee its security, fulfilling the Scripture. Buckle your seatbelts, he writes. All you who believe in Jesus the Messiah, we are in for an exciting ride soon. Yeah, I'm not sure where it's going, but you're in for a ride. Now, according to this dispensationalist theology, the Antichrist makes a covenant with Israel for seven years at the end of time. So you see how the prophecy is just kind of cut off from itself. And so the church age is in the middle, and the seven-year tribulation comes at the very end. 
Dear heart, Jesus Christ Himself did not leave this verse to speculation that we're looking at. Do you know that Jesus Christ Himself interpreted Daniel 9.27 in such a way that we are not allowed to go down the road of this end-time tribulation week? Unfortunately, we're out of time and need to leave this broadcast there. But listen again next time as we conclude The Secret of the Lost Ark. If this message is ministered to you, remember there are many more just like it at reachingyourheart.com. If you're a regular listener to this broadcast or if you've just tuned in for the first time and have been inspired by this sermon and you'd like to partner with us to help keep these radio broadcasts on the air, you can simply call us at 1-888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-HOPE, day or night, 24-7. One of our team is available to assist you right now. We believe God is moving across the globe, touching lives and reaching hearts. And you are helping make this a reality with your gift of any amount. These are urgent times and God has an urgent message. God's message in Revelation is one of warning and encouragement. And it's a personal appeal to all of mankind. It is his final message before sweeping changes occur across the globe. Events that will take place just prior to Christ's second coming. You see... God doesn't want His church to be surprised by the events that will take place. He wants His church ready for His return. We have a book titled God's Last Altar Call that will encourage you and help you understand what events must take place as found in the book of Revelation. We'll send you this book for a donation of any amount and pray that you will be encouraged to know that you can discern the events that must take place prior to His second coming. Please call at any time, 24-7-888-244-HOPE. And with a donation of any amount, we'll send the book right out to you entitled, God's Last Altar Call. We pray that you will be lifted up by the biblical insights in this book and grow spiritually in your walk with Christ. Thanks for tuning in, and we pray that God is reaching your heart and growing you up in Christ through these messages. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.